It's Friday, December 14th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date from Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Uh, I have a weird story to share with you this week. Oh, I um, like weird. Yeah. So back, you know, for about the last 20, maybe even 30 years, there's this, been this small area of research in biology about a phenomenon called quorum sensing which is this idea that bacteria, particularly bacteria that are trying to invade another host, actually can communicate with each other. But the way they communicate is kind of strange. They, when a bacteria gets into an area, they release these sort of molecules, these small molecules that bind to receptors on another bacteria in the area. And by releasing these molecules and kind of getting a sense for, you know, the concentration and all that stuff, they can get a sense of how many other bacteria are in the area. Hmm. And they use this kind of intelligent information to essentially make decisions uh, about whether they should be replicating in this host or try to spread out to the other host, to a new host altogether. Hmm. And one of the bacteria that does this is called Vibrio cholerae, which is the bacteria that causes cholera. And this kind of intelligence and something that we associate as being, you know, a relatively simple organism in a bacteria is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, does it does this basically work through changing gene expression? I mean, I'm trying to think about what 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 is the mechanism behind a bacterium's ability to change its behavior? Yeah, so it secretes a signaling molecule called DPO, and then it gets detected by a a protein. And as the the concentration changes, it triggers a sequence of genes that essentially reprogram the bacteria, as you're suggesting. So this like kind of protein mechanic that we see happen in a lot of living cell tissue, whether it be bacteria or up through humans, uh, and it changes their sort of reproductive behavior uh, accordingly. So in and of itself, when you sort of break it down, it's not that complicated. But the kind of intelligence that it's do, that it's exhibiting as a collective by sensing each other is new. Now, this isn't just the only part of the story, because like I said, we've known about this for about you know, 20, 30 years that this happens. It's a unique phenomenon, but it's, it, we've known about it for a while. What's new is that we found out that it's not only the bacteria that do this. It's the viruses that have this capability, particularly the bacteriophage that is trying to kill this cholera bacteria, has developed a receptor that resembles that same protein receptor on the bacteria so they can sense when the signaling molecule is out there to help hone in on their bacterial target so they can invade it and destroy it. Wow. How about a crazy uh, adaptation is like, oh, you're going to use the signaling molecule to tell each other how many of you are, there are? We're going to reverse engineer it to essentially target and find you. Uh, this is just an insane kind of evolutionary step for this bacteriophage. Uh, and if you want to talk about the intelligence of these bacteria communicating to each other using the signaling pathway, what about the intelligence of this virus to sort of take up on it? It's pretty amazing work. Yeah, I mean, and when you think about it, it's not that that far away from what's happening in our own brains. And, you know, like, are we going to get to a point where you know, we can some, somehow use the same kind of mechanism to to sample what is going on in someone else's brain? I mean, you know, this is like pie in the sky dreaming. But like, you know, what if you could kind of just, you know, distill it down to a kind of um, 
pattern of neurotransmitter release and you can kind of get inside somebody's head the way that a bacteriophage could. <laughs> I mean, you could imagine a, a million different ways of manipulating this system because it, you're essentially you have remote sensing now mm -hmm. uh, of what's happening. But I should give credit to Ed Young, who wrote a, an incredible story about this work. It's It comes from the lab of Bonnie Bassler at um, Princeton and her student, Justin Silby, who actually discovered the bacteriophages are actually uh, listening to this signaling pathway. Yeah, Ed has been killing it lately. I have to say uh, his his work at the Atlantic about the uh, um, CRISPR babies and everything has just been really, really fun to read. And Ed's been killing it for a long time. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, speaking of reading brains, uh, I wanted to talk about a study that I read about today in preparation for and a study, series of experiments that I'm going to be doing in January. So as uh, some of our listeners might know, I teach at the Conservatory of Music in San Francisco. And one of my goals there is to help musicians kind of harness the power of neuroscience to become more efficient at, at practicing their instruments. And to that end, you know, a lot of them have seen these ads on Facebook and elsewhere for a company called Halo, which pr has produced a headset that uses, uh, they say, transcranial direct stimulation or essentially, you know, um, stimulates the, the, the motor cortex and in that way is supposed to enhance learning. Because uh, we, 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 we know that if you, you know, stimulate motor cortex in rodents, for example, um, we can see, you know, motor learning benefits. And, and there's some compelling evidence um, among humans that, that works too. Now, so one of the one of my tasks is to evaluate whether this is something that can be useful for musicians. You know, does the halo system actually work the way it says it, they, it does and so forth. But in, in my research to try to sort of understand how this might work, I came across a study that just was published this week about creativity uh, and how you can, if you know, there's a there's a certain type of brain oscillation, an alpha wave. People might be familiar with that, or you know, it's a brain wave uh, that in the alpha band, and apparently it might be the mechanism by which we are able to inhibit bad ideas. What do you mean by that? Inhibit <laughs> bad ideas. So that's like, not a thing that you associate as like a just an electrical impulse that you can disrupt. Right, right. So I think this is what what is kind of, you know, I'm always a little bit, actually a lot skeptical, uh, when I hear claims of, of brainwaves being, you know, a, a attributed as a, as a mechanistic uh, thing for a particular cognitive function. Uh, because of course, the brain is complicated. And, and most of the time, it's it's correlational evidence, right? So, you know, people are doing some kind of thinking, and then their brainwaves are measured. And then people say, oh, well, these brainwaves must be driving the thinking. But, you know, it could entirely be that the brainwaves are just secondary. Uh, to the thinking, um, or just, you know, one aspect of it, but not actually the driving force. Uh, so I read this paper a little bit more clearly, and I should give credit to the first author, Caroline Luft, uh, and the last author, Joy Deep Bhattacharya. Uh, and so they actually included four experiments in this uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences PNAS paper. Um, and let me walk you through them, because I think that's actually the genius part of this paper is that it's pretty comprehensive. What they did first uh, is that they had their participants complete a classical creativity task. It's called the remote associates task or RAT. Uh, and essentially what you're supposed to do is figure out how, you know, two things might be associated um, and it's and it's like, you know, pretty remote. So, so an, you know, it's, it's, it's an example of divergent thinking where you're 
you know, another another kind of way to think about it is like, let's say I ask you, you know, give me 15 uses for a paperclip. Uh, so the first thing you're going to think of probably is, well, put two papers together. <laughs> um, and as you as you think more and more, you actually have to inhibit that kind of knee jerk reaction to go to how the thing is actually used um, or how you use it in the past. And and the better able you are to suppress all these kinds of benign uses of a paperclip, uh, the more likely you are to find the really creative uses. So, so anyway. it's, a li- it's a little bit of attention and a little and a lot of bit of creativity. Yes, yes, yes. I, yeah, I guess I guess there is a, an, a obviously an intentional component to it. Um, but but yeah, so the idea is that like, one of the processes involved in creativity is is kind of not jumping to the easy solution. Uh, and that's hard for all of us. That's sort of like what our brains are kind of built to do. <laughs> it's to solve the problem quickly and efficiently. But, you know, in order for us to be creative, we need to sort of think outside the box, That and which means that we need to uh, find the solution that is not obvious. So what they did is they essentially had uh, people do this uh, task while they were Uh, being stimulated with uh, transcranial alternating current brain stimulation, so TACS, on on their right temporal lobe. And we know that that the right temporal lobe seems to be involved in this kind of thinking. Um, And then they compared that to what happens if they were stimulated on the left temporal side or a sham stimulation. And it turns out that um, participants actually perform better on the task only when the right temporal lobe was stimulated with this alpha signature brainwave. And then they they actually looked at what happens when the participants are just doing, you know, these problems and they measured their brain waves and they found that in fact they did see more activity in the alpha band um, when participants were correctly solving uh, the items that had kind of um, misleading associations. So like where there was an obvious solution uh, and they had to like inhibit it, that's when we they saw this uh, this boost in in the alpha band. Then they they showed that there are there are additional diversion thinking tasks that participants had to come up with uh, more kind of again remote ideas and that that also was improved by stimulating the right temporal lobe with the alpha signature uh, and then finally that again they showed higher uh, power in that band when people were. Um, thinking of more remote uses for common objects like the paperclip task. So I think that's a pretty, you know, compelling series of experiments that show that at least, you know, there might be a kind of direct mechanism by which this kind of brain oscillation helps with the the forming with the solving of this kind of task. You you also just made a really compelling case that the halo object is going to have a hard time replicating those kinds of results with the kind of specific pattern that you're talking about stimulating. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, my biggest uh, skepticism about a commercially available device like Halo, where, you know, these these oscillations are obviously very specific, they're specific to tasks. And so, you know, it seems like it's gonna be very hard to have a kind of a tool that can be used for many different in many different um, ways. And especially when it comes to music, where, you know, there are a lot of different skills involved and and how you become a better musician is not not just, you know, improving your motor learning, although that is a big part of it. Um, so, you know, we'll play with it and we'll see what happens. And, uh, and you know, maybe we'll get some improvement. And, and if not, you know, we'll definitely learn something. So I'm excited. In 2013, Amy Arrett founded a company called Madison Reed, which she named after her daughter, and she was on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. 
for the last couple of decades, women have had two options. You could you could go to the hair salon and spend a lot of time and money, uh, or you could use outdated at-home hair color. But Amy created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better than the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color with the convenience and affordability of at-home care color and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. So you'll look like you just came from a salon, but you didn't. You had more me time to do what it is that you really wanted to do. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. It is the holiday season, Indre, and as we're wrapping up another wonderful year of Inquiring Minds, I'm wondering if you have any sciencey gift recommendations for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, so I've been perusing gifts for the preschool set uh, and slightly older, and uh, there is one gift that actually my son already has that I think uh, is is actually becoming more interesting to him. When he was littler, he didn't really like it, uh, but now he seems to be more and more intrigued, and I think it's because he's four now, and you know he can actually use it the way it's intended, and it's called a coda pillar. Do you know the coda pillar? No, I don't. So the Coda Pillar is a toy that's supposed to um, teach kids how to code. Uh, and it's very, very simple. I mean, literally, you know, a three-year-old can do it, although apparently not my son. <laughs> well, he could do it. He just wasn't that interested. But now that he's four, he's super interested. It's essentially a series of these little bits of that, that eventually make up a caterpillar. And the bits have images, icons on the top of them that show you what that bit is, program, is programming the, the caterpillar to do. So it can turn left, it can turn right, it can go straight, it can have a dance party. And what you do is you you set out these, these uh, you know, this kind of like little obstacle course for it. And then you, you put together these commands, essentially, they clip on, they become like the part of the caterpillar. And then you push go and the caterpillar will do what you've commanded to do. So it's, it's a way for him to sort of learn that, you know, code is about you know, putting together these series of uh, commands and that the way that you put the command uh, can influence how the code runs and also whether it's buggy. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty bad. But that sounds super cool. Uh, I have two recommendations and they're both books by authors that were on the podcast this year. Uh, All Over the Map, which is from Betsy Mason, who was on about a month ago, is one of the most visually stunning books uh, that I that I've read in a long time. It just charts a four two hundred plus maps um, from different realms, maps of other worlds, maps of the ocean floor. It's it's just stunning. It is the definition of a perfect science coffee table book. And also, I want to recommend Aroused, which is the, from Randy Hutter Epstein, about the, which was the story of hormones and all of the ways they interact with our lives, rule our our world, and just the crazy history behind how some hormonal therapies uh, were originally developed. I really love that episode. And the stories in the book are even crazier than what you hear then, including the jar of pituitary glands. I'll just leave it there. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, Join us on Monday for my interview with Robert Greene, who wrote the best-selling book, The 48 Laws of Power. And he and I talked about his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. So join us for that on Monday. See you next week. Bye. Bye.